Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series again, Defending the Faith. So let's turn our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, as we hear a message called, It's About Jesus. Let's go to Dr. Newfeld now. Some time ago, I was getting my hair cut, and I'd been given a gift coupon to a high-end mail-only barber shop complete with a shave. And I was intrigued to go, and I must confess, I loved it. It felt like being in a man cave and the shave, which included hot towels. What can I say? It was fantastic. See, I don't remember how it started. The barber and I were engaged in a conversation about Jesus. You know, he'd never been to church before, and like a great many white males living in Vancouver, he had almost no context for the conversation, but he wanted to have it nonetheless. He asked me about fundamentalist Christians who claim to be born again. He said, what's that all about? And I explained to him that Jesus himself had used that kind of language, and I told him about the incident in John 3, and and he was intrigued. He said he'd never heard about that before. And then he said, as, as he understood it, All religions teach the same thing. They teach you to be respectful to others and to live with wisdom. And I asked him if he came to that conclusion by studying various religions, or did he come to that conclusion simply because that's the impression that he got from from what other people were saying? Well, he said that's a good question, and he said it was the latter. That's what the people he listened to seemed to be saying. But he told me he had no interaction with religion in general, and, and then I asked him if I could give him my perspective on all of this, and he said, sure. And I said that I thought that not only were religions vastly different, but the great religions of the world were not even asking the same questions. I said, for instance, Buddhism doesn't even think there's a God, so that the question of how to get right with God, well, that's not even an issue for Buddhists. I told him I had recently been to a large Buddhist temple in our area, and I had read all the pamphlets they had given me. The pamphlet said there was no God to save us. Instead, Buddhism wasn't even concerned about salvation. It was about enlightenment of consciousness. But I said Christianity thinks the greatest problem that human beings have is our problem with the one true God. See, our Creator gave us laws on how God expects His creation to live, but we've rebelled against Him and His laws. And so, for Christians, the greatest challenge is how to be reconciled with the one true God. And so I began to talk about Jesus. You know, rather than shutting me down, my, my barber was intrigued. I mean, no one had ever explained that, and soon we were talking about the significance of Jesus. Now, the conversation didn't lead to his conversion, but in my mind, any conversation that ends up by talking about Jesus is significant. But all of that leads me to the central question of today's message. See, I'm convinced that even while Jesus is very popular and interesting in our culture, most Canadians don't have any idea who he is. Now, you're listening to a three-week series on apologetics, teaching people to give a reasonable defense of the Christian faith. Now, often when we talk about apologetics, we deal with a number of issues. Are the Bible manuscripts reliable? Are miracles possible? What about the problem of evil and suffering? What about science? What about sexuality? And in truth, we're going to be addressing these issues in this series, but I am of the opinion that the question of Jesus must be first and foremost in any discussion. I mean, after all, Christianity is about Jesus about who he is, what he did, what he taught. And so the most important task of the apologist or the person who wants to defend the faith is to defend the real 
historic person of Jesus. Not false views of Jesus, but the Jesus of history. You know, a little illustration is in order. Imagine I tell you about a friend that I have. Let's say his name is Carson. Carson, I say, is six foot five. He's got blonde hair. He's got an easy smile. He's, he's athletic, and he's a brilliant mathematician. But when you finally meet him, you find out he's five foot seven. He's overweight, and he's unemployed. And you ask me, why did you so misrepresent him? And I say, well, that's, that's just how I like to think about Carson. Now, does that sound bizarre? Well, if it does, consider Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 to 4. He writes, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. You know, there's so much to think about in that short passage. Deception, says Paul, is a key weapon in Satan's arsenal. If people are fascinated by Jesus, Satan's strategy is to present them with another Jesus, a different one than the real Jesus of history. You know, those of you who know church history will immediately recognize that the early Christian church was consumed with this question for the first three to four hundred years of her existence. Trying to define who Jesus was almost divided the church. Let me try to explain that. Matthew records one incident in Jesus' life that, that surely led to the discussion we're talking about. I'm reading Matthew 8, 23 to 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds in the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now let me restate this scene in my own words. After a day of intense teaching in the village of Capernaum, which, which included healing countless sick people and correcting the ideas of would-be followers, Jesus called his disciples to get into a fishing boat and set out on the Sea of Galilee. I mean, after all, the village of Capernaum is a beautiful little village nestled right along that lake. And as they crossed the lake, Jesus began to show the exhaustion that came from the emotional strain of his ministry. In no time at all, he was fast asleep. And then, as happens frequently on that lake, a, a sudden violent wind whipped up, and it was so violent, it appeared that Jesus and his band of disciples were about to become the latest statistic on a very dangerous lake. And as the waves are crashing over the boat, the disciples find that Jesus hasn't awoken. And he's so weary from his crushing ministry demands, he lay there in the boat almost comatose. And after all, that's what happens when a person feels that kind of pressure that clearly Jesus was feeling. At some point in time, your energy is just gone and you simply can't go on. And the disciples are trying to wake him and they're saying, save us, Lord. And it's really an amazing statement. After all, he's just demonstrated that he is as frail as any man. And yet when they finally rouse him and he rubs the sleep out of his weary eyes and, and gains perspective, he stands up in the boat and then he commands nature itself to listen to his voice. And instantly... Not only does the wind stop blowing, but the waves instantly become calm. Every molecule of air and water responds in obedience to his command, and it does so the instant he speaks. And going from a violent storm to absolute calm in a moment, 
The disciples are left standing in the boat, still shaking and staring at him. And they're now asking a question. What sort of man is this? Or who is this man? Or just what kind of a person have we been following? And as I've said, for the first 400 years of the church, that conversation utterly dominated the church. I mean, the reason for that is that the church thought that if they didn't get this thing right, if they couldn't answer this question with precision, there would be no faith to speak of at all. And so what follows are a series of proposed answers to the question of just who is this man? So some argued that the divine Christ took over a human body, the body of Jesus, and others argued that God had adopted him because of his unusual holiness. You know, one man, a bishop from the city of Alexandria, a man named Arius, taught that Jesus was the first being that God created. And so, although he was infinitely inferior to God, he was still vastly superior to man. Well, all of these varying theories created incredible disagreements. And as I've said, it almost tore the church apart. But eventually, through painstaking and detailed study of Scripture and listening to others and finding where their theories couldn't be biblically sustained, the church finally settled on the only answer. The man who fell asleep in the boat and who could also command all of nature was both fully God and fully man at the same time. And that's what the scripture taught. And everything that Jesus did and said fully and completely demonstrated that one central premise. And so armed with the truth of the real historical Jesus, the church had a message to tell. The disunity came to an end eventually not by suppressing dissenters. In fact, it was the other way around. It was the dissenters that tried to suppress the people who were telling the truth. Really, the disunity came to an end because of the sheer force of the biblical argument. And that little fact of history has everything in the world to do with how we might respond to a similar confusion about the real Jesus in our world today. February is a critical month for raising funds to support the international ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. The primary focus continues to be India and surrounding areas, providing Bible teaching resources that include the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, aired and distributed across India throughout much of Asia and the Middle East. Other efforts include partnering with Back to the Bible India to reestablish a significant, vibrant and sustainable expression of ministry. This month, we're praying that you'll join us in reaching our budget of $75,000. And to celebrate these efforts and as our free gift to you, we want to send you a limited edition music CD created specifically for Back to the Bible Canada called Songs of Zion. This is an inspirational CD performed by friend of Back to the Bible India, violinist Shalem Christie. Call today for your free gift to support these international efforts and to request your CD gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. The struggle of the early church that they might safeguard the Jesus of history as, as fully human and fully divine, well, that was a battle that was worth fighting. Our battle today is is a different one. Let me suggest seven different Jesuses that are really quite popular today. None of the seven are the real Jesus of history. All of them present a Jesus that never really existed at all. 
The first is what we might call Jesus the Guru. You know, Jesus the Guru is the one who made journeys to the East and studied under the great yogis of India. According to this view, when Jesus said, as is recorded in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. According to these people, what he really meant is that unless you attain Christ consciousness the way he did, you will never reach divine enlightenment. You know, they mean by that, that he had attained divine enlightenment and self-realization, and he has raised his own spiritual consciousness. Now, we should learn to be just like him. Now, my response is, nice try. I mean, first of all, in, in, in John 14, verse 6, if that were really a form of Hinduism, who then is the father that Jesus speaks about? I mean, did he really mean to tell us no one reaches Brahman except they learn to live as I do? Well, that's exactly what Jesus the guru teaches. But is that what the real Jesus taught? I mean, anyone who bothers to read John 14 will immediately see that's definitely not the case. Listen to the first two verses in John 14. Jesus is speaking. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So the context is clear. Jesus is telling his disciples that he's about to die. He's going to leave them. But they are not to be afraid, but they're to trust in God. By by saying trust in God, he means very clearly the Jewish God. I mean, God in their language was the one supreme being who created all things and who showed his love to his people by entering into a covenant with them. God was personal. God could be known, and he must be obeyed. See, in times of difficulty, they were to trust in him. I mean, no guru ever speaks that way. Indeed, there's more. Jesus was going to his father's house in which there were many expansive villas, and he was preparing a place for them there. I mean, they would live with him there. See, in Hinduism, the future holds no dwelling place in the presence of God. In Hinduism, the future, after progressive cycles of the transmigration of souls, the soul's individual identity is then forever lost as it is assumed into the vast dimension of the One, Brahman. There is no dwelling place with the Father. And so when Jesus said, no one comes to the Father, he meant no one goes to the Father's house after death except as they trust in me. And that is what the real Jesus said. Look, you can be a Hindu and you can disagree with Jesus, but you owe it to yourself to be honest. Allow Jesus to be whom history declares him to be, the man who believed in the Jewish God and who proclaimed himself to be the only begotten son of the one true God. That's who he was. Another Jesus, Jesus the Guru. That Jesus doesn't actually exist, but that Jesus is very popular today. And then secondly, there's Jesus of Islam, who is the forerunner of Muhammad. Now, to be honest, this Jesus is a lot closer than the Jesus the Guru. I mean, after all, the Jesus of Islam is the Jesus who believed in the one true God. He is the Jesus who is born of the Virgin Mary. According to Surah 3, verse 49, this Jesus healed the blind and the lepers. He also raised people from the dead. But listen to Surah 4, 155 to 58. Allah set a seal upon the Jews, owing to their unbelief, so that they shall not believe except a few. For, for they say, surely we have killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the apostle of Allah. Nay, they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but it was made to appear to them. In certainty, they did not kill him, for Allah took him up to himself. 
See, Muslim scholars teach that Jesus was not crucified, but that he switched places with Joseph of Arimathea and that God secretly took him up into heaven. But again, as before, it's a different Jesus. All the eyewitness testimonies of Jesus clearly indicate that he died on a cross and that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead. But let's present more of the other Jesuses. I mean, third, there's the Jesus of the United States Republican Party, Jesus the right winger. He's the one in favor of free market economies and and getting government off of our backs. And then fourthly, there's the Jesus the left winger. I mean, according to this view, when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he was really talking about more government involvement in social services, like providing a tax structure that would prefer the poor over the rich. And then fifthly, there is the Jesus who is my personal psychologist. I mean, that's the Jesus who helps me to to come to terms with myself, you know, and have better relationships with people and helps me to get in touch with my emotions and, and heal the wounds of my past. And then sixthly, there's the Jesus who's the prosperity gospel preacher. I mean, he's the one who, quite frankly, will help you name and claim health and prosperity. And then finally, seventh, there's the Jesus who's the enemy of religious institutions. Have you heard of him? I mean, Jesus who hates organized religion. You know, according to this view, Jesus came to help you to develop your individual inner designer-based spirituality. Even though Jesus specifically said the opposite, that seems to make very little impact on these folks. See, Matthew 16, 18 records Jesus as saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Indeed, all of Jesus' disciples after his resurrection spent their full time doing that very thing, planting and building churches in every city where they went. Or to put it another way, they established organized religion everywhere. Go figure. You know, don't you see? All of these other Jesuses are really just frauds. And so with these seven disparate views of Jesus, where does one even begin? How does one talk intelligently about Jesus in a world that seems to believe we can make of Jesus anything that we want? Indeed, any self-made Jesus is just an attempt to ignore the real Jesus. You know, for those interested in defending the faith, it's always helpful to begin any conversation about Jesus by starting at the beginning. If I were to have a conversation about Jesus with someone who fit into one of the seven groups that I've just mentioned, I would start by asking them what they thought was the central message of Jesus. I mean, when he preached, when he taught, when he was involved in a dialogue with people, what is it that he was communicating? I would then take them to to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. You know, Mark, as you may or may not know, is thought by many to be the first of the Gospels. That is, it's the first eyewitness record we have of Jesus. And according to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, gospel simply means what? Good news. According to Mark and according to all the eyewitnesses of Jesus, they heard him saying that the good news was that the kingdom of God was at hand. And because of that reality, it was necessary for everyone to believe him and to repent of their sins. Now, in Judaism, the kingdom of God was the hope that one day God would end rebellion and lawlessness and evil and the impact of Satan. Evil would be defeated and God would establish his kingdom on earth. Now, the impact of this present evil age is just felt in numerous ways. Wars, evil dictators, diseases, injustice, demon possession, ultimately death. 
And so Jesus came and drove out demons and healed the blind and the lame and the, and the leprous and even raised a few people from the dead. And eventually, of course, he died on the cross and defeated death itself. Clearly, the first evidence of the coming kingdom of God had already tumbled into the present hour. And then Jesus announced he would return one day. And when he did, evil would receive a death blow and God's perfect kingdom would reign forever. And in the meantime, there was no greater task for any human being than to turn from this present evil age, repent of your sins, and turn to God. But how would God receive us? After all, our sins create a separation between us and our Creator. Indeed, our sins condemn us. And so the real Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, prayed in the garden, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You know, in the Old Testament, the cup was always seen as the cup of God's wrath poured out on the wicked. And so Jesus died in our place and drank the cup of God's wrath in our place so that anyone who believed in him would have eternal life and already belong to the age to come. And that, in a nutshell, is the real story of Jesus. You might think that nonsense, or you might find that compelling. So compelling that you repent of your sins and turn to Jesus and await the arrival of the kingdom of God. But in either case, you owe it to yourself not to lie to yourself, because the real Jesus of history is the one that exists and wants an impact in your life. John, thanks so much for today's message. You know, I was thinking as you were talking, I could have added a few different descriptions of Jesus as well. Jesus, the Santa Claus, and it goes on and on and on. Uh, but you know, why do you think it is that we contrive all of these different images of who Jesus is? I think there, there are two reasons for that. I think one, Ben, I think Jesus is so fascinating that he continues to compel our attention. So I don't know that we're ever going to get away from Jesus regardless of, of how secular our culture becomes. But on the other hand, as fascinating as Jesus is, the real Jesus is so overwhelmingly and alarmingly offensive. And because of the offensiveness of Jesus, it just doesn't seem right to our, many of our minds. So, you know, it, you know, we begin to contrive a Jesus that looks very much like the Jesus we'd like him to look like, or he fits so well into what I already believe. He's, he's not the Jesus that, that arrests me in my thought and says, you're going the wrong way entirely. So I, I think uh, that's really why Jesus continues to be this fascinating and at the same time misunderstood figure. I, I guess he's always going to be. Thanks so much, John, and join us tomorrow as we continue our series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Laugh Again, a ministry resource of Back to the Bible Canada, has had a profound impact on so many lives. In five brief minutes a day, Phil Calloway, through his special gifts of encouragement and humor, has opened doors to people hearing about the gospel or simply finding hope in difficult times. So many notes and emails of deep appreciation have been received. Well, Laugh Again is expanding its programming with Laugh Again TV. That's right, Laugh Again will be using one of the most viewed resources, YouTube, to present Laugh Again Take 5, five-minute videos produced to reach a huge audience with a unique message of hope and joy found in Christ. So check out the Laugh Again TV YouTube channel and subscribe so you never risk missing an episode. And remember, tell a friend. 
For more information or to support the ministries of Laugh Again, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca.